This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello, this is Nick Oswald, and today our very own Amanda Welch is talking about how to critically analyse a research paper. And that's a skill we could all do with polishing up. So let's drive, let's dive straight into the presentation. Over to you, Amanda. Thanks, Nick. That was a nice introduction, and let's get started. So, and this is going to be a two-lecture series. So today I'm going to talk to you all about how to critically analyze a research paper, and I'm going to walk you through an example um, of doing so in with a paper, a condensed version, because obviously you all don't want to sit here and hear me blather on about somebody else's research. You'd rather read about something that's more relevant to your own. And then next week, we're going to talk about um, some real world examples in critically analyzing a research paper and what you do with that information, especially if you're brought on to review a paper for a journal. So peer, the, doing the peer review process for a journal. So our next um, step is to talk about what questions are relevant for analyzing a research paper. So the very first thing you need to think about is, is it relevant? So is it relevant to your research? Is it relevant to the field at large? So if you're looking at, say, a paper on crystallography or in, um, more broadly protein structure, does it deal with the structure of a protein? The next thing is, is, is it on topic? So if the title of the paper is something along the lines of the crystal structure of caspase 9, is the paper entirely on topic? Does it stay on a topic broadly within the structure of caspase 9? And then next are the methods appropriate. So you're looking at whether the methods that the authors are using, whether or not they can actually answer the question. So if you're looking at, say, something like the structure of caspase 9, and the methods are about the activity of caspase 9, then obviously that's not going to really match up. And then the other thing is, does it overreach? So does the conclusions it comes to, if, it if it's talking about, again, the structure of caspase 9, does it talk about to then about how this is now the end-all be-all and it's going to cure cancer. So you want to see if it um, falls within that, ang that area. And then finally, is it scientific? And by that I mean, does it approach the topic in a rational and logical manner? And I'm going to touch on this briefly, but we have a lecture series coming up in about two weeks that will go over this in more detail. So first, where to start? So the first thing is, as you look at PubMed, you're searching for things on your particular topic, and you come up with something that's an interesting title and abstract. So for this, I'm going to use one of my papers from um, 2011 because I don't feel bad about pointing out the weaknesses in my own paper, um, whereas I don't want to poke holes in somebody else's. And I've got a thick skin. So the very first thing you want to look at is the title. So look carefully at the title. Is it something that is interesting or relevant to your field? So in my case, I was looking at F1FO ATP synthase in um, yeast, and I was looking at the structure function relationship of the peripheral stock. 
So in this case, something in this title would be very interesting to me. Now, if you're looking for, say, another synthase, so maybe GTP synthase, this may not be as relevant to you. If you're looking at another type of ATP ACE, so if you're looking at, say, like a P-type or B-type ATP ACE, then this might be interesting to you because it talks about the structure of a closely related enzyme. And especially at the time that this paper was published, a full structure of the F1-FO ATP synthase had not been published yet. Um, and no structure, uh, full structure of um, several different types of ATP ACEs hadn't been published or hadn't been found at this point in time. So the very first thing you do is you look at the title. Then you go through and you look at the abstract. And in that abstract, you should be able to pull out certain key points. You should be able to pull out their main question of the paper, as well as the results. So the key points in the abstract, you're looking at the question. So the differences in subunit structure between the eukaryotic peripheral stocks raised a question about whether the two stocks have similar physical and functional properties. So that's the key question. That is what this paper is going to investigate, is whether the peripheral stocks, while they have a different um, structure, if they have similar physical and functional properties, because we know that the eukaryotic and prokaryotic ATP synthases act in a very similar manner. You remember from way back in basic biology, your ATP synthase is in your um, mitochondrial inner membrane. And you know that if you remember, it's thought that the mitochondrion, mitochondria in your cells is from an endosymbiotic relationship. So meaning that way, way back in the evolutionary process, so eukaryotic cells somehow engulfed a bacterium, and that's how mitochondria came about. So since we know they function similarly, do they act similarly? And that question should be very easy to pull out. The next question, the next is to look at what is the main, um, what is the main result of this work? So in this case, the length of the yeast, the subunit was manipulated to determine whether it had the same tolerances as the bacterial enzyme. And then the result was that wild type growth phenotypes, you could get those for insertions of up to 11 and a deletion up to four amino acids on a non-fermentable carbon source, which means that in this case, it just meant that the um, yeast had to undergo um, oxidative phosphorylation. They couldn't, you know, make alcohol, which, you know, can be a shame in the lab, especially when things go wrong. But in my case, I definitely wanted them to undergo oxidative phosphorylation. And then finally, what the, the overall conclusion of the work was, and this is that the results suggest that although the eukaryotic stock is near its minimum length, the B subunit can be extended for a big distance. So basically what the saying, what this article is about is that they're looking at the physical functional properties, so not the structure, but the physical and functional properties between the eukaryotic and prokaryotic peripheral stocks. They're looking to see what, what they're going to do is they're going to lengthen and shorten the peripheral stock and see what, if it breaks the enzyme. What they found was that, that you can insert up to 11 or delete up to four amino acids and everything still works. 
And what the conclusions they draw is that the stock is near its minimal length, but you can extend it quite a bit. So we know now that it is relevant well, for me, it's relevant to my research topic. We know what the question is, we know how they approached it, and we know that the results are, un, are not overreaching. So then the next thing I would do is I would look at all the figures in the paper. In this case, there's a good number of figures in the paper. So there's one that shows the length of the gene. It's one that looks at all the growth properties and the genotypes of the different strains. There's one that looks at the activity of the enzyme with all the mutants. There's a Western blot and there's some growth studies. So look at the figures and see if there's anything that jumps out at you right away that seems like something might be wrong. In this particular case, maybe you'd look at the Western blot and think, hmm, there's just a very skinny blot of it. Maybe there's some nonspecific binding, either higher or lower in the blot, and that might be something that would raise an issue for you. Now, what you're gonna do is you're gonna look at the methods. And this is very important because a lot of people tend to kind of skim over this. You look at the abstract, maybe you read a little bit of the introduction, you look at the results and the conclusions and you skip entirely over the methods. The methods are important because that's how the experiments were performed. If say you're doing a Western blot and you skip over some very vital steps like adding your secondary antibody or something like that, then that's going to make your results entirely questionable. So you have to look at the methods to understand how the result or how the authors got the results. So you've got to learn about how the experiments were performed. So what I would do is I would match the methods with the figures. So in this case, I picked an example. I picked one of the, um, I picked the growth studies one. And so this is for the deletion mutants, and this is for the insertion mutants. And what we did is we did serial dilution. So this is 10 to the sixth cells per mil, and the fifth cells per mil, and to the fourth, so on and so forth. And this goes the same. So seventh, 10 to the seventh, 10 to the sixth. So a million, 100,000, 10,000, 1,000. So on and so forth, all the way down. And you can see that there's a lot of growth here. So then what you want to do is you want to flip back in your paper. So in this particular case, I will go over to the let's go like this, and we will go over to the paper. So what I did here is I looked at this and I said, okay, they grew this on YPGD. What is YPGD? So you can scroll up here. And you can look and see what YPGD is up in the methods section. We keep going and see right here, we can see what this is. You can see that what YPD medium is, that it's got 1% um, pacto yeast extract, 2% pacto peptone, and then glucose, which is 2% glucose. And we know that you can switch that out in case of um, galactose if you wanted to. Let's go back and make this in biggin. There. And then we know that biological F1FO ATP synthase activity was determined by plating serial dilutions on 2% glycerol and 0.1% glucose and incubating it. Let's go back. 
So that is how they did that. Maybe you have a question about why the authors decided to do um, YPGD. So that would be their normal um, rich media, but then they added both glycerol and glucose. Why the two carbon sources? This might be later explained somewhere in the results section where they discuss it, or maybe in the discussion section. More than likely, it'll be in the results section. However, if you have questions about this, then the right thing to do would be to email the corresponding author because chances are the corresponding author will be happy to answer any of your questions about their work. So also make sure you look at the tables because the tables can be very important. My particular paper had a lot of different tables and a lot of different techniques to go through. So in this particular case, I just picked out um, one of the tables. This is the F1FOHB synthase activity. And I went and I looked at the different methods. So this one has a very long and complicated method because it involved preparing the mitochondria. So there is a very long and complicated method going all the way through here. You could also go back and you can read the original sources, which is something you might want to do. If they, if the authors state, which I'll show you in a little bit, if the authors state, well, this is done essentially how it was done with so-and-so, go back to the original sources and look and see how that was done to make sure that it's still applicable to what you're doing. So for example, later on, it says assays of ATP hydrolysis were performed essentially as prescribed by Zagalov and Ackerman. The correct thing to do would be to go back and look at Zagalov and Ackerman's paper and see what they did and make sure it's actually applicable to the mitochondria. Because maybe Zagalov and Ackerman described an, described an um, ATP hydrolysis assay that was done in bacteria. That's not going to be relevant in um, for yeast. Or even worse, it could be done in plants. And plants have a cell wall and all sorts of other things going on. So that also might not be applicable. Also, make sure you look in the results because sometimes the results do explain different things. So in this particular case, um, there was um, oligomycin in there. And you might wonder, okay, well, what is that? I understand what ATPase activity is. What is oligomycin? And then in here in the results, it says oligomycin inhibits the enzyme by interacting with the FO proton channel. So basically, oligomycin um, inhibits F1FO ATPase activity. So going back and looking at this, to understand this table entirely, you'd have to go back and look at how the mitochondria were formed or isolated. You'd have to understand what the ATPase activity is. So in this case, you want to look carefully at the units and see if the units make sense. So what this assay is measuring is it's looking at micromoles of phosphate per minute per milligram of protein. And then you need to understand if, so if that makes sense. So you want to make sure the units make sense. So if you're looking at a rate, in this case, you're looking at a rate, you're looking at the a number of phosphate molecules released per minute per milligram of protein. Then you're going to need to understand what, what minus and plus oligomycin is and then where this number comes from, that percent oligomycin sensitivity is. Um, in this case, I can go ahead and tell you that the percent oligomycin sensitivity comes in from the actual ATPase activity coming from the F1FO ATPase. 
So this involves you having to go and look at a bunch of different places. You have to go back and look in the materials and methods for how mitochondria were isolated. You have to go and look and see how the activity assays were performed. Maybe even going to another paper to find out how those activity assays were performed and making sure that it matches up. Also, you need to make sure that you understand all the different parts of the table. So whether or not that rate of activity is appropriate, what those words mean. So that's what I would typically do is I would go through and I would find the figures and I'd match up the methods with the figures to make sure that makes sense. Next, you want to think about, well, do the conclusions fit? So do the results support the conclusions? Do the authors offer context for their results? And then maybe even consider drawing or sketching your own model. So in this particular case, it's dealing with a structure function relationship. But if your particular work or your particular interest lies in, say, something like signal transduction, well, draw, sketch it out. If the authors don't do that at the end for you, sketch out how you think it fits in with the overall signaling scheme. Same thing if you're doing something with like transcription factors. Put in and see if that makes sense, if that works. If there's something that maybe that you know directly contradicts it and do they address it in their discussion and conclusions. Now there's common items that you should look for when you're going through these papers. So looking for error bars on figures and tables. So in the case of tables, what you would do is you would look for what this is. So plus minus 1.1. And then in this particular case, in the legend for the table, there is a, um, that tells you what this is. So in this case, it's the standard deviation. Um, in other cases, it could be the standard error. And that's important. And it's important that you know what standard deviation standard error is. But that should be there because science is not exact. You're not going to end up with 5.0 every time you're going to have things that are going to go up and down a little bit. Let's go past here. Oops. Scale on figures. So the big thing is looking at the scale. If you're plotting something, looking at what the scale is on the X and Y axis, make sure that makes sense. Also, because a lot of times authors will compare things, say, you know, as in figure one, like comparing figure one and figure two, the scale bars on the y-axis have to be the same or at least similar. The units of measure on the y-axis, x and y-axis need to be the same if you're making those comparisons, as well as the actual scale. If um, figure one scale goes from zero to 10 and figure two goes from zero to 100, then even if you have, say, just a straight diagonal line on both and they look identical, they're going to be for different values. So make sure that those scales are there. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. The next thing you want to do is you want to look for positive control and negative control. So again, I'm going to go back to this table. So in this case, the positive control is the wild type. The negative one is the um, enzyme without a particular subunit. And then you have the um, mutations. And you want to make sure that they're not only present, but they're appropriate. So in this particular case, so for positive control, typically you're always looking at the wild type system, so the system that's unperturbed, but you want to make sure it's the right one. So let's take a very 
random example or a very classic um, high school science fair experiment. You're going to play music to different types of music to plants and see which one grows the fastest. So what would you use as your positive control? And what would you use as a negative control? Well, your positive control is going to be something that you know works. So maybe a plant that is, if there's a previous work that's been done that shows that pop music makes plants grow faster, then that would be your positive control. Your negative control would be a plant grown around no music. Maybe a plant grown in complete silence. It would not, that would, however, your positive control would not be just a plant that you left alone and didn't talk to or didn't do anything. That would actually be a negative control because there's no stimulus. What you want it to do is you want to see about adding something that would make the plant grow faster or grow better, you know, more healthy. So those would be positive and negative controls. Um, in cases of, say, if you're doing a Western blot on a protein, then you're going to want to do a protein and you're doing mutations on the protein and obviously you want the wild type protein. Um, if you're looking to see whether or not a protein is present or absent in a cellular maloon, you're going to do a Western blot on that. What you want to do is you want to use a isolated component that would definitely pick up that protein. So you might have to have two different um, positive controls, one for your protein and one, like one for your antibody and one for your, uh, one for making sure that you're picking up any protein at all. So maybe what you would do is you would have a recombinant version of your protein that you know reacts with your antibody. And that, so that would test to make sure your antibody works. And then maybe you would look for, say, something like actin in your cells and then make sure that you are pulling down protein. So you would have two positive controls. So just because I say positive control doesn't mean that there's only one. Sometimes you're, there's more than one because you're looking for two different items. So in this case, you're testing to make sure that your antibody works and you're testing to make sure that you're actually getting the protein that you think that you're getting the protein from the cell. And then your negative control in this case would be, obviously would be doing the antibody in the absence of protein. So then you're looking for the, whether or not the antibody is picking, you want to see what it looks like when you don't have the protein in that, um, that cellular milieu. So we'll go back. And then are there methods for each result, which this is something that I think happens rarely, but it does happen where the methods are not fully explained for how you get each result. And this tends to be a result more of um, papers that have um, word limits. So things that are like in cell or nature or science because people leave things out. But you, that's part of why I recommend going through and matching each figure with the methods that are appropriate for it. Because you can see if, there are if the methods describe that particular result. And then finally, are the conclusions justified? So you want to make sure that you could carefully connect those dots from A to B to C to D, which is part of the reason why I suggest sketching out a model for yourself. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be something that you would display up on your wall. It can be a simple matter of just words and arrows to connect everything together. But that's what I would do for looking at whether or not the conclusions are justified. Now I have some general tips for going through and analyzing research paper. So I always made a chart 
because you'll, over the course of your career, you'll analyze hundreds, if not thousands of research papers to try to keep them all um, straight in your mind can be really difficult. But also this helps you kind of pull out that key bits of information. So my chart always had the first author, last name, last author, and that's because a lot of times papers will be referred to by, say, Welch et al., or they'll be referred to as that paper, as the 2011 paper from the Kane Laboratory. In this particular case, you have, um, that way you have both. And when somebody says, uh, refers to item one, you can be like, yes, okay, I can find that. I've read that paper. Um, I suggest that you keep this in Excel or on a Google Sheets um, drive if you want to because um, then that gives you a little bit of portability. I don't think you need to do anything fancy unless you really like dealing with um, like databases and Microsoft Access and SQL things and stuff, but this can be enough. Anything that's really searchable would work. Put the year because that'll help you distinguish the main question of the article. So in this case, it's the tolerance of the peripheral stock. If you're looking at a signaling paper, it might be something about um, say, the Jackstack kinase. And then you're going to look at the key experiments. So what experiments really clinched it? You don't need to list every single experiment. So for example, in my paper, I can show you there's a lot of different figures, a lot of different. Um, so you're going through here. We go through how we ended up making a synthetic gene. Um, there we did primers to be able to make using um, ligation mediated mutagenesis to make the different mutants there's growth and genotypes here's the construction of the mutants um we looked at the conserve conservation across eukaryotic species so from yeast to cows growth studies um western blots ATPase activities, this, that, and the other things. So there's a lot of different uh, figures and tables and everything that go into this particular paper. And that's not uncommon to have that many figures and papers for, um, it's not uncommon to have those figures, that many um, figures and tables for that paper. Really what you need to know is just the key experiment and their results. So in this particular case, it's the biological activity that is the key experiment was looking at whether or not that um, subunit could be lengthened and shortened if it would still work with the enzyme. So that's what you're looking at is biological activity. You can, you can expand upon this if you want. Obviously, this is just for the purposes of this talk. So you could put in a little bit more detail. You could talk about, um, you could say something like, serial dilutions of mutant F1 and FOATP synthesis showed um, this, that, or the other thing. And then put the main conclusions. And my suggestion, we try to put it into a sentence or two at most. Because as I said, you're going to read hundreds, if not thousands, of research articles over the course of your career. And at the very least, if you try to write a paragraph for each one, it's going to get very, a very long document, very complicated, very quickly. In this case, tolerates additions, not deletions, proposes a model. So this would be enough to at least be able to get you in the realm of where you're going. Um, 
my particular version of this chart also has a um, column over here with a link to the PubMed site. Um, you don't need necessarily need to do this. Maybe you know you don't use PubMed or you use World of Science or you have some other um, way of categorizing papers. But that's how I would do it, and that's my suggestion for how um, you can do it to keep everything straight as well as keeping in the forefront of your mind what is that main question of what are those key experiments what are the conclusions because i think it's very easy when you're reading through a paper is that everything just seems to hang together very nicely like of course you're asking this question and of course this is the next step and of course this is your conclusion there's no way that it could deviate from that when you put it down and you're writing down the main question and the key experiments, it gets you thinking about, okay, is this really the valid experiment for that particular question? And it gets you start thinking about, okay, what are the weaknesses of this paper? So in this particular case for my paper, as I mentioned, the Western blot doesn't show the entire blot. It shows just that little band and it might make you think about cross-reactivity. Is that enzyme really, or is that antibody really that specific? Um, I can tell you that it was and that we did it by bringing it to safe space, but that's really not an excuse. It really should be to where we have, um, where we have those results. We have the bigger, um, picture of the gel. Um, another weakness is that we used a semi-quantitative method to look at those, um, Western blots, and that might not have been the best way of doing it. Um, for doing, say, like the ATPase activities, when you looked at that chart for the wild type, that's a very wide variation. And why might that be? And maybe that's something that you should look at and you could investigate and consider. So those are things that you would think about and it helps you focus on that. So now I'm gonna talk a little bit about some resources. There are a couple of resources that I used to put together this talk and that I used also during the course of my graduate career and postdoc. So this is a new one. It has a checklist for evaluating your research um, articles, and it's very straightforward. It actually breaks it down even further where it's looking at, okay, what's in the introduction, what's in the materials and methods, what's in the results, so on and so forth. And then this one was very nice. Um, it is written more towards the idea of getting um, like med students and physicians on how to appraise an article. However, I thought that it was very useful for first year graduate students or early career graduate students to go through and read because there's a lot of similarities between those two. And then um, Penn State University has a short one page handout about how you can critically evaluate research articles and journal articles and what you should look for. I would definitely recommend looking at that. So finally, do you all have any questions? I'm happy to answer any questions that you guys might have. Okay, that was uh, <laughs> that was a great uh, a great presentation, Amanda. Again, another one of those that I wish I had when I was in the lab. <laughs> it's um, I guess what you're the, the core of what you're talking about is just not making assumptions. It's so easy to think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you said, it all hangs together. The paper all hangs together. It looks, you know, seamless at first glance. Um, and 
you know, you know, so it must all be right, and they wouldn't make any mistakes, and it's been peer reviewed and everything. Right, and it seems like um, everything just kind of follows down this very logical path. Like this is the only way it could have gone, and that's how you. I mean, and when you're writing a paper, that's how you want to present it. You don't want to say, "Well, we had these doubts about you know this result, or you know we weren't sure what this means, so we decided we would try this too." To re you know you. You know, that's not how you want to present your research paper, so. Which is a shame. It would be nice to have a bit of honesty in there, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, like, and even when you're going through and looking at the methods, like, sometimes there's, um, like, in when I did the growth studies, it was, I think I put in there that um, we grew them for 30 hours. And that's because I didn't want to have to get up and come to the lab in the middle of the night. So we let it grow until midday the next day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so like, even with those type of things, like it sounds like very much like, of course, you're going to let this grow for 30 hours, because yes, that's how it's done when really it was done to make sure that I was able to sleep in the next morning. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? You don't, mm -hmm. you don't get that. And if you just assume then, then you don't get any of that. So um, here's a question that was probably um, on many people's lips, I would guess, looking at that. So most people I know, don't go in, into any anything like this amount of rigor with papers. Mm -hmm. Are you suggesting that we should go into this level of detail with every paper? At least the key papers that are kind of the, um, either the cornerstones of your field or ones that are going to be the basis for your hypothesis for your research. Um, so not every single paper, but if there is a, major paper that you are basing a large part of your research on or a couple of major papers, then that should be done. So um, like when I was in graduate school, one of the major papers that I came out was a structure, a partial structure of that, of the subunit I was looking at in um, cows. And so that paper I went through and tore apart entirely and went into a lot of detail upon it because that was part of my basis for my dissertation. Um, so something like that would be the thing that I would really go into a lot of detail on. And I definitely would do that for all of, not all the papers that your laboratory has published in the past, but the most recent ones that are applicable to what you're doing. Because during your, when you're, you know, if you're in grad school and doing your defense, or even if you're, if you're a postdoc and you plan on giving talks, people are going to ask about the previous work done in your laboratory and expect you to know about it. Yeah. and fully understand it. It's interesting, there's a common theme running a lot, uh, through a lot of these talks, and it's, just, and, and it's mainly, uh, that theme is um, about responsibility, about taking personal responsibility mm -hmm. for the work that you do, and, um, and doing that radically, and not abdicating responsibility to other people in any shape or form. That's quite interesting. I, I just that just struck me there because I didn't realize that that was going to be in this. That it, it's really mm -hmm. yeah, you, sure. I'm thinking about it that way. You're not even abdicating responsibility to the. You know, I, I know that I in the past have been guilty of abdicating responsibility to the um, to the authors of the paper, mm -hmm. and, or the peer reviewers, and saying, "Yeah, okay, what they said is right." So, you know, off we go. And right. But if you, as a scientist, take personal responsibility for evaluating that paper yourself, mm -hmm. it's not only a great education for yourself, it means that 
you know, you're literally building on their, if you're literally going to build on your sho their shoulders, you're doing everything that you can to make sure that that, that at least that you know that what, what that foundation is. Yeah, and I mean, I think even though, like I pointed out several weaknesses with the paper that I published, and just because yeah. there are weaknesses doesn't mean that it's a bad paper, or the peer reviewers no. did a bad job. It just means that yeah. science, it's not, like science isn't perfect, and it's never going to be perfect. Yeah, and exactly. I think, and I think that by understanding those weaknesses, it helps you formulate better research questions, too. Yeah, and if you go back to that question, those questions about, uh, you know, what we were talking about at the very beginning of this mm -hmm. um, program, when we just started, and we were talking about flagging papers that were um, fraudulent or mm -hmm. things like that, then this is where that happens, when you really right. dig into a paper. And, and you figure it out. And it's not that that's the sole reason, but that's the level of responsibility you have as a scientist, I guess, if you're looking at it like that. Yeah, and I think that, um, like, it's not only your responsibility to maybe the scientific community, it's your responsibility to yourself, because yeah. that is something that's very different from, uh, like, a, being a PhD-level scientist, so being in grad school or postdoc or faculty or industry. Being at that level is something that you have a responsibility towards is, you know, looking for those research questions and coming up with your own conclusions. Yeah. Okay. Here's another question. Uh, I'm not so good with st statistics. Mm -hmm. It would take me a long time to statistically verify every paper that I read. What would be your suggestion? So I don't think you need to statistically verify every paper that you read. I think you can be comfortable with the idea that it's gone through peer review, but you should be able to know the basic terms and for everything to be able to pass the sniff test. So you should be able to know whether a standard deviation or standard error is appropriate for this particular um, question. You should know if a t-test or an ANOVA or a chi-squared test is being is appropriate for that type of question. Yeah. I don't think you need to go through and be able to do the calculations yourself for every single paper that you look at, but I think you should be able to know like, okay, we're looking at frequency of something happening, so a chi-squared test would be appropriate here, whereas maybe an ANOVA wouldn't be, um, that sort of thing. So like being able to know how those tests should be applied is important, but the, I don't wanna say the actual mechanics are unimportant, but I don't think anybody can reason, not everybody can be everything, so. Sure. Yeah. Just get yourself brushed up a little, get yourself a little bit of basic knowledge, the one yes. um, and kind of dive in there. Okay. That's all the questions for today. That was a, a really, Enjoyable talk and much needed, I think. Well done, Amanda. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links.
Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.